Welcome to the inaugural episode of State of the Family Courts. I'm your host, Mark Real Jr. I'm a California family law attorney and founder of Real Fathers Rights. And I'm excited to have you all join us every Thursday night. Now, what will State of the Family Courts be? Each Thursday night, I'll be bringing a top attorney from a different state to talk about their laws, where they're headed legislatively, and provide educational tips for men navigating family courts nationwide. Even with a single state highlighted every week, each week we'll strive to provide practical tips that men can take back with them to help them through what is undoubtedly one of the most challenging chapters of their life. But most importantly, the show will be driven by you, the viewers. If you have any questions you want answered, topics you want addressed, or there is someone you'd like to see on the program, drop me a DM at my Facebook page, The Father's Rights Attorney. All right. So let's turn to our special guest for tonight. So our guest tonight, she's a mother, a grandmother, attorney, business owner, and an advocate for change. Her law career started as a prosecutor of domestic violence and child abuse. In this capacity, she learned the tragic consequences of physical and emotional abuse in the intimate sphere of family relationships. For over 20 years, she has had a private practice defending the rights of parenting, families, and children against the intrusive interference of government entities. Her published case of Andrews v. Hickman County has been quoted many times in the Sixth Circuit's clarification that the Fourth Amendment does apply to social workers. She had the first case in Tennessee representing children against their parents in a suit for damages after years of abuse. She's also been involved in suing Williamson County for the constitutional violations for the treatment of a juvenile while held in detention. Her advocacy for change has pushed her to build a social media network of families, professionals, and lawmakers as a centralized place for posting of ongoing activities in the child welfare arena. The Family Ford Project on Facebook has over 5,000 members, and it provides a forum for the posting of news stories, legislative announcements, personal stories, and legal training. Connie is a licensed attorney in the state of Tennessee and the founder of Law Care Family Law Center, which is a Brentwood, Tennessee-based law firm representing families throughout Middle Tennessee. So join me in welcoming tonight Connie to the program. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, how is the, uh, the Tennessee summer treating you? Well, thank you very much. Well, it's been a very odd summer and spring. It's been a very wet one in Tennessee and kind of hot and cold. So uh, it's been a mystery, but I'm sure within a couple of weeks here, it will be steaming hot. So so, so have you and your practice also seen the spike in uh, child custody and divorce kind of coming out of the COVID? Um, well, you know, I, I haven't seen that a whole lot yet. I know going into COVID, we had a lot of absolute chaos when the school shut down and people didn't know what to do about visitation. Our courts were pretty quick to say that the pandemic does not affect parenting plans and you need to follow that regular schedule. So I haven't really seen this spike of divorces coming out. Things kind of it was really just an odd place to be. I, in a way, did enjoy having courts by Zoom. It was a, a little tricky at first, but it certainly uh, was much 
more time um, uh, efficient because it, as an attorney, you spend, especially on a motion docket, you can spend all day in court and represent your client for an hour and then they get a bill for $2,500 and want to know what you did. So I am always very cautious about that, but I did enjoy that part of the pandemic, I do have to say. I hope we keep some of that. The uh, five to 10 minutes in front of a judge, but four hours waiting is rough. And, and out here, I haven't necessarily seen the divorce, but it seems like coming out of COVID, now everybody's running out and saying we've been having issues with our child custody plan mm -hmm. um, over the past six months to a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this 27 years now, so I would say... Uh, typically, there seems to be a little bit of a spike around the holidays and a little bit of spike of going into summer. But other than that, I mean, there's almost always consistently issues with custody and visitation and, and contact with the children. So it's very, very challenging. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So let's hop right into um, what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're planning on covering uh, some Tennessee specific laws, new legislation, um, we're also going to spend some time talking about how you can most effectively prepare for your custody case. And then we will also get into some constitutional law in family court. And at the end, as long as we have time, um, we'll take a few questions from the viewers. But first, before we get started, a um, little disclaimer. I am an attorney barred in the state of California. Connie is barred in the state of Tennessee. All information provided is for educational purposes only, and nothing can replace a consultation with an attorney in your state where you can discuss your specific situation. Furthermore, nothing in this program should constitute the formation of an attorney-client relationship with any attorney on the program. If you are in Middle Tennessee and you're looking for representation, I'm going to drop Connie's contact information in or her website in the chat and you can visit her there and get in touch. And I will also drop my contact information in the chat if you're in Southern California and we, you can reach out and get something set up. All right, so we'll hop in um, now. First thing is um, we're gonna talk about Tennessee specific law. So to, to give everyone some context, so um, the National Parents Organization, which grades out state laws about every five years in terms of custody, um, they gave Tennessee a C. Mm -hmm. um, for some more context around that, 25 of the 51 states and territories, D.C. was included, received either a C minus, C or C plus. So Tennessee sits firmly in the middle in terms of custody laws. So, Connie, I'm going to pass it over to you in terms of painting with a broad brush what Tennessee custody laws are and then how they actually play out in the courtroom. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. And again, I'm going to, uh, I, I want people to sort of understand that my perspective is based upon 27 years. So, you know, when I came into family law and, and law was a second career for me, so I'm getting pretty old. But when I came into family law, we were on what was called the standard visitation program, right? Basically, as soon as you walked in a courtroom door, you had to tell or you had a burden, you had a hill to climb as to why a father should have anything more than every other weekend and two weeks in the summer. I mean, it was really kind of shocking, actually, but that just seemed to be 
where we were. Now, you, every law that is made has to be implemented by a judge. And I work in circuit courtrooms, chancery courtrooms, general sessions courtrooms, juvenile courtrooms, and every judge is different. And I say they come in 32 different varieties, just like ice cream. And so you have to understand your judge. A lot of the judges that have been on the bench for a very long time have a really hard time adjusting mentally to changes in the law when it comes to custody. I tell all my clients, I say the courtroom is the last, the judge is the last person in the world who should be making decisions about your child because your child is nothing more than a name, a date of birth, and a social security number to your, uh, to your judge until you can personify that child to the court. And I mean, I work on that with clients. I'm like, what is your, what does your child like to do? What do they like to wear? I bring always, always, always bring photos. So you have to personify the child to the judge so that it does not look like when you get in the courtroom that the custody battle is a personality battle between a man and a woman. So critical. So um, I have spent, I've represented men, I've represented women, I've seen women who've been abused by the system, I've seen men who've been abused by the system, and being prepared, every single uh, parent, being prepared is absolutely critical. All right, awesome. I got, I got two points I want to ask you to dive a little bit deeper on. So one's a very common question that, that I get. Um, I think a lot of dads get. So you mentioned the judges and you get a judge who's been on the bench for 20 years, 30 years. Like they, they basically planted roots um, and they struggle to adjust. What can an individual do to effectively navigate that? Because in a lot of states, once they make an order, you're kind of stuck unless there's some misconduct. Well, yes, absolutely. And and custody decisions are, and as attorneys, we can talk this language, and I'm sure a lot of other people don't understand it, but custody decisions are, are reviewed on an abuse of discretion standard. So basically, you have to show that the judge was so far out in left field, so to speak, that absolutely nothing, he should have never done what he did. And I have appealed custody decisions, and I've wrote appellate appeals, and there's some of them I've won, and some of them I've not been able to budge anybody on. But, you know, the judges have really, really broad discretion. So you need to know the judge and hopefully you have an attorney who has some experience with the judge or the attorney themselves have some type of reputation that precedes them into the courtroom. So I kind of, of course, started at the place where I just had to experiment with judges and get to know them. And, you know, I give judges, um, I treat judges like people instead of like some kind of statue that's just sitting up there to intake information and try to observe them and watch their behavior and their conduct and their comments. And, you know, one of the things I, I tell clients who are testifying, I say, when you're on the stand and you're testifying, you keep your eyes on me and, and watch everything I say to you and listen very carefully because I'm promising you that I am watching you, the judge, the court reporter, the opposing party, and the opposing counsel. And I have my eyes on all of those people. And if I see a judge is not is maybe getting, uh, you know, judges, they're not very good poker players. So sometimes they get a funky look on their face or, or they're not even listening at all. You know, they're like making notes or they've, they've leaned over to talk to the clerk. I mean, you have to be very keen on what's going on. And I say, look, if I ask you the same question twice, 
don't think I'm trying to get a necessarily get a different answer because I want your answers to be consistent. But the reason I'm asking you that is because the judge either wasn't paying attention or was looking away. And if you give me an answer and I and I prod you to go further with that, there's a reason that I'm doing that. So your attorney has to understand the judge. And, you know, I now having had done this for 27 years, I pretty much have a reputation that precedes me. And at least a third of the counties in Tennessee. So, you know, the judges know I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to know the law. I'm going to have all my exhibits. I'm going to have all my evidence. My clients is going to be as, as prepared as I can make them. So knowing your judge and how your judge is going to play into this is very important. And I will say that also includes because there are some counties where what we call, and I don't know if this has happened to you uh, yet, Mark, but we call it you get home cooked. When you walk into a county that's maybe two counties away and there's a local attorney there and he plays golf with the judge. And, you know, so you have to be very, very tuned in to the relationships of the other attorneys with the judges as well. And that's just the reality of it. Yeah, no, I've, I, I have not personally experienced that. I happen to be in one of the most densely populated areas of the country being out here in Southern California. So most of there's multiple courthouses. There are over some some courthouses have two dozen judges in them. Um, but I, I have definitely seen where you get to the small rural counties, especially up north out here in California, and it's one judge, two judges, and they know all the other attorneys and, and they, they like some, they don't like others. And you can be in a really tough spot. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very brave when, and I, I kind of like rural counties. I mean, I work in, in metropolitan Nashville, which is about, I don't know, I guess it's a little over a million now. And then in my County, which is probably about 250,000 just South of, of Davidson County. And I like the, that, 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 metropolitan feel, but I also like a lot of the small counties. And so, I mean, I go into those courtrooms with a presumption that the judge is going to have a certain level of favoritism. And let's just start from, that's just my starting point. And then you have to work around that and, you know, just be extremely prepared when you walk in. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we talked about the um, burden of appealing a custody decision and how challenging that can be. And that kind of parlays into um, you guys in the state of Tennessee um, did get a big win um, this year in terms of legislation. Um, we always talk about and you hear a lot of conversation around really three pillars of a very strong custody law that we're looking for. The presumption of 50-50, the standard to rebut that presumption, and the one that doesn't get as much attention but is maybe the second biggest deal behind that presumption of 50-50 is getting facts, findings, and conclusions. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my screen here because we wanna, wanna show you guys some things. So um, Connie, can you talk about uh, the bill that, that got passed in the state of Tennessee and what it means for custody cases? Yeah, so this is a pretty big change. Um, I will also tell you, um, language in laws is very, very critical because if a, if a judge wants to pervert the law, he will pervert it through the language of the law. So there is a presumption, uh, pr before we had a presumption of near equal time is what it was called, and that the court would have to make uh, certain findings of fact. But now they are saying, 
that there's a presumption of joint custody and uh, that if the parties agree, they don't have to have findings of fact. And this is a really, believe it or not, this little tiny thing is really a good thing because for a while there, we had parents who would agree to 50-50 custody and they would go in the courtroom and the judge would say no. <laughs> I would be like, what? I mean, they would totally agree. So now they're saying that if there's an agreement and the people sign off on an agreement, there doesn't have to be any findings of fact and conclusions. But if there's not and there's a hearing uh, and there's still, you know, there's all kinds of language in here about saying that the court has wide discretion, which is, you know, still a marker. But it says that there will be if there's a hearing that there will be a presumption of joint custody by a preponderance of evidence. And that unless the court finds by clear and convincing evidence uh, to the contrary. So uh, so you've got two. We've got two things happening here. One is called a standard of proof and one is called a burden of proof. And they're very different things. And to the layperson, they totally get lost in that language. But the standard of proof is really how much you have to put in the bucket. So a preponderance of evidence is just a little more than 50-50. It's just like, okay, we just got to tip the scale in favor of one person or the other. And clear and convincing is supposed to be like, almost topping it out as like in criminal, um, the criminal standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. So uh, I know some people get confused and they think it's beyond any doubt, but no, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So clear and convincing is supposed to be a very, very high standard. I will tell you that the courts, because I work a lot of juvenile cases, which require a clear and convincing standard of evidence, I do not believe the courts are very good at distinguishing between clear and convincing and a preponderance of evidence. And there still is such a discretion there, it makes it very, very difficult. So I'm a little bit, I like the idea that we have the language in there and with some very good representation and good attorneys who are prepared to walk into the courtroom and argue the standard of proof, which is a firm conviction, okay, not more probably than not, but a firm conviction as to the facts are, are to one side or the other. And, you know, this is a challenge and I'm just going to say to your listeners and I, you know, I really hope that your listening audience has, has two things that they are going to develop personally. One is to be really prepared to go forward, be pr good prepared litigants, be prepared to tell their story and feel comfortable doing that. And the other side of that is I want them to be prepared to be good good activists because we need more people constantly involved with our general assemblies, helping make sure that we have good laws. And maybe we do a, a show one time just on that issue. But as to preparing for court, that clear and convincing standard, you are going to have to have your story crystal clear, crystal clear, and you need evidence and you need to, uh, you know, you get into she said this and he said that and you're there's no balancing. The judge's minds just blow up, right, because they cannot they, they make credibility determinations based upon tiny little things. So being super prepared inside and outside to walk into the courtroom is going to be the critical thing of being prepared to be successful and still ending up with joint custody, even under this bill, which I think leans us. I think it leans us, leans you a little bit. I don't think it leans you really as far as, as the father's rights movement would like. Yeah. I, I would, I would say that the facts, yeah. findings and conclusions 
Um, if NPL were to grade out the state of Tennessee again, maybe bumps you up to a C plus, maybe a B minus. Um, but let's let's turn and let's uh, for, first to our, our viewers. I have put the link to the Tennessee General Assembly bill in the comments. Uh, go take a look at it after the show. This is this is a way you can educate yourself. This is a bill that gets one of those perver proverbial first downs when it comes to truly getting to equal and shared parenting. And the biggest thing, is, as Connie talked about, how, how can we create change is being that activist. And you have to be able to have educated conversations. So if you can go and look at these bills that did get a first down and you understand why, you can have those educated conversations with your elected officials on the positives of these bills and to help get them passed. Yeah, so, and, oh, and let me talk a little bit about the facts, uh, findings of fact and conclusions of law. That's that's what it is. So this really hit our court of appeals really started hammering the trial courts probably six or seven years ago now because a lot of orders, not just child custody orders, but whether it was wills and probates or summary judgments, they really, the judges were just ruling almost, you know, totally subjectively and not really putting down the basis of how they reached that decision. And so our court of appeals was just really laid the hammer down. And there is what is in Tennessee, it's rule 52. And we pretty much follow the federal rules. So California probably has something very similar. Is it you, if you get an order from the court and the court does not put findings of fact in there, you can file a motion for rule 52 and ask the court to make findings of fact. So, but the court of appeals, if, but you're not required to do that. And so people would go to the court of appeals and the court of appeals would say, I don't know. I don't know what the trial court did. I don't know what they made their decision based on. And so they really, really started hammering it. And then there was this whole learning curve because there is a distinct difference between a finding of fact and a conclusion of law. So a finding of fact is the sky is blue. A conclusion of law is it's a pretty day out today, right? So you still had judges who would say it's a pretty day out today. And you would go, you know, basically like, uh, what's what are you basing that on, right? Or it's not raining or what is it? So very important to push your judge. And if you have a good attorney, your attorney is going to know before they walk in the courtroom what findings of fact they want the judge to make. And they're going to know at the conclusion, some judges allow or ask the attorneys to write the findings of fact and conclusions of law and propose them to the court. I kind of call that the lazy man, the lazy judge's way to do it. And then they pick one or the other, depend, you know, and again, still sometimes it's still by preference or attitude or subjectivity, but your attorney and you as the client, as the father, as the parent, when you walk into that courtroom, you need to know at the end of the day, what do I want this court to find as a fact in my case? Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the biggest thing is, uh, I'll, I'll kind of add to that, is you have to sit, when you get findings of fact and conclusions of law, when you have those things in the orders, judges don't want to get overturned on appeal. <laughs> that is humiliating to a judge, whether it be in federal court, whether it be in state court, they do not want to get overturned. So 
some of these judges who maybe have been very lazy and haven't been following the law, but they have this broad discretion, have been getting away with that because you can't find abusive discretion, which is a very, very high standard to meet. It essentially means the judge is doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Now with facts, findings, and conclusions, that judge has to file why they made that decision. They have to reason that decision out and they don't want to get, they don't want decisions getting appealed and they definitely don't want them coming back to them with the appellate court having said, you did this wrong. Right, right. Because then it's basically a do over. It's like, what do I have to do? Start over here? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. what people don't know is that, or I think some people don't understand, most of the time the appellate court is not hearing the entire case. Right. It's, it's a legal conclusion that they're saying, was the law applied appropriately? And so for them to say, well, the judge didn't apply the law appropriately, go redo this and apply the law appropriately is a slap in that judge's face that they don't want to have. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but you know, the findings of fact, again, you've got to know when you walk in there, for instance, let me just say, who takes the child to the dentist? Who does the homework with the child? Who takes the child to soccer practice? Who goes to the games with the child? Who calls the teacher, you know, when, or who does the school call when the child bumps their knee or, you know, gets a boo-boo? Which grandparents are closer to the children? How do you, you know, what are the activities that you like to do with your kids? What do your kids like most about you? I mean, sometimes I ask parents that. What do you think, what is, you know, Johnny like the most about you? What do they, what makes them smile when they see you? So you've got to be prepared to tell that story and photographs, 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 and sometimes videos. I mean, I walked in the, I walk in a courtroom with, and I have my photographs. I send them to to Kinka or uh, FedEx or, or Office Depot, and I have eight by 10 color pictures. I have them page numbered. I put them in a notebook. And so, and I've got all the activities and stuff, and I end them up there and ask them. And the judges always go like, you don't have to go to those pictures one at a time. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to mark them all as an exhibit judge. And you can look at them during your lunchtime. But, you know, I, and I'll sometimes pick a specific picture. I'll say, turn to page, you know, 45 and look at that picture. Where were you guys? What were you doing? You have to personify your relationship with your child. I cannot stress that enough. I also tell my clients, I say, look, you own the facts of the case. I don't. I'm just an attorney. I'm here to know the law. I'm here to help you figure out how you get your evidence into court, but you own the facts and you're the one who has to create the facts. Very, very true. And we're going to come back to that. But first, we're going to have a quick commercial break for the Equal and Shared um, Parenting Benefits Program. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, Access Services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $25 a month through Father's Day. 
Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. All right, awesome. We are back. So we're kind of shift gears now. We, we've talked a lot about Tennessee specific and then their new um, new laws around facts, findings, and conclusions. Um, we started to get into preparing for your case. And Connie was talking about making it personal, making the judge know your child. So let's roll it back to the start. So someone walks into your office. Where does the preparing of the case start? Where's the first place you go? Yeah. So, and I will say a lot of people, you know, when they come to an attorney's office, you know, it's like going to the dentist's office with a toothache. It's like, it's not a fun place to be. So, you know, the, one of the first things you do is want to get a comfort level. And, you know, I try, I want people to be comfortable. I don't come in. I'm not boisterous. I'm not, um, you know, I, I a lot of attorneys are, are just kind of egotistic and want you to just think they're the big winners. I really want you to feel comfortable because you're going to have a journey. And, and I, you know, I, I started my law practice, I say as cousin Connie, because it was a great place to talk, but then immediately you need to start identifying. I allow somebody first to just talk. And I say, you know, you start talking and then I'll ask you questions. And so I just let them to start at the starting point that they want to start at. And that's very telling because there are a lot of times and, and the first part of the show, I spent a lot of time talking about personifying your child. Okay. So that's very, very important. It's it, you know, we cannot be blind that we know a very, another part of the case. It's very, very important is knowing how you need to respond to the attacks on you and what kind of attacks you need to make on the other parent if you do need to do it. And if you is such as if there is substance abuse by one party or the other, you need to know how to defend it. If you've had your own history of substance abuse and you need to know if the other uh, parent has substance abuse in their history and you need to know how, what kind of evidence you're going to have to have to present it. I mean, I find that the, a lot of the contest between parents, although there are some some substance abuse issues, and I take those very serious. A lot of the contests between parents, once they get in the courtroom, are just disagreements about the parenting style that they did, and that becomes an absolute tug of war. One parent is more of a free parent who, you know, wants the kids to go out and play, and the other parent is like a, you know, hyper protective parent. And then what happens, and this happens a lot to dads, I'm just going to say, you have this hyper protective mom, and she walks in the courtroom, and all of a sudden, everything dad does is dangerous, right? He takes them out for campfires. He, you know, he takes them, taught him to ride a bicycle on a public street. I mean, it's like everything becomes like life-threatening when it's not, right? So if, if a dad is more of an open dad of more wanting children to experience life, they need to be prepared and they need to be set up to know how to respond to that kind of attack. Because if she gets to go first, and she starts talking about what a horrible, unsafe father or parent you are, you need to know how you're going to address that and talk about it. So from the very beginning, you want to, as an attorney, you want to kind of identify what those issues are going to look like. What are the issues that ultimately are going to have to come out in court? Now, as soon as you start determining issues, you start determining evidence. And evidence 
uh, you know, has to be either certified records, witness testimony. You can't have letters. You can't have a piece of paper from your dentist. You know, you can't have a report card, <laughs> although we do use report cards. But, you know, you have to have good evidence. I also have people record and videotape, especially if they tell me that there are conflicts in the exchange, then they need to have a videotape of it or a recording of it. You just have to these days. And even before we all had cell phones with video cameras on it, I had a dad, I had a, a case with a mom and a dad. They were not married, but a child was about two or three. And mom's testimony was every time he comes to pick her up, she screams, right? She screams. She doesn't want to go. She screams. I told my client, I said, you're going to get a $20 recorder. You're going to put it in your front pocket. You're going to turn it on. When you pull up to her house, you're going to walk up to the door. You're going to knock on the door and then you're going to walk out. Well, I mean, I had a 30 second video or audio that showed as soon as he, she opened the door to the house, a little girl was going, daddy, daddy, daddy. Okay, so I've won a case on a 30 second audio before. You have got to show that. I mean, I've, it's, gets kind of gruesome sometimes, you know, or kinds of maybe some people even call it kind of sleazy, but I mean, people have put up videos now, uh, cameras in their house. You know, I had a case where a woman told me her husband was drugging her and she put up an in-home camera system. And sure enough, he was in the kitchen drugging her glass of wine. So you have to think of how am I going to prove that to the judge? Otherwise, they're just, you know, they don't know who to believe once you get into the courtroom. Yeah, definitely. I thought you made a really good point in terms of preparation and strategy. I always use a football analogy. So you have to scout yourself where you're going to be offensive. And you also have to self-scout where you're going to have to defend things. And you and your attorney then need to, in turn, scout the other party. Where are they probably going to attack you? Where are they? What? How are they going to be defensive? How are they going to – where are their weak points? That's a big part of the case because I see it over and over again. Guys come in with loads of what they call evidence – and it's just too much for the judge. Mm -hmm. Like we need to pick and choose. Like you can't run every play in the playbook in the case. Like right. we got a game plan and we got to pick the right plays to win the game. Mm -hmm. So some of the, some guys that come in and they're like, I have 1000, like the pictures of the kids and that makes it personal. That really, that there's not a lot of detail in that. That just makes it very personal. But when you come in with all of these detailed text messages and reports and all of this stuff, it can get convoluted. Where if you can pick the right four to five plays and really highlight those pieces of evidence, that's what will stick in the judge's head. Well, and, and I'll say, um, because these days there are, we do have the ability to get a whole lot more evidence because of cell phones and text messages and emails. I mean, we have a whole lot more documented than we did years ago. There's a couple of things. And one of them is I develop uh, the themes of the case, right? So the theme of the case, let's say, is like she's always canceling a visit, you know, 20 minutes before I'm supposed to pick my child up. So we might have you know, but if it's text messages, because I, because I, as an attorney, I don't want the other side 
to call what's called the completeness doctrine on me as far as lack of completeness with text messages. So we may indeed download 70 pages of text messages, but then I convert them to PDF. I page number them. I provide the page numbered copy to the other counsel. And then I go through with my client and I say, I'm going to hand you this. You're going to identify it. We're going to mark it as an exhibit as the complete communication. And then I'm going to say, turn to page 25. And then the judge knows exactly where to go. Turn to page 25. What day is it? What happened? What does she do? Look at page 37. What happened? What does she do? So I want to develop my themes, which may mean these days I have more of a bulk of, of evidence, but I have it streamlined for the judge. The other thing that I do a lot, we have a rule of evidence in Tennessee called 1006, 1006. And the 1006 rule of evidence is a summary. So if you have, again, 70 pages of text messages, you as an attorney, you can just prepare a cover sheet and you can on that cover sheet, you can say page 25, you know, September the 25th, 2020, 20 minutes late at the visit, you know, and you can just sit down and you can list it. That way the judge can look at the summary. Your client can look at the summary and can just testify right from the summary. And then you hand it in, you mark it for the judge. You've, you've got everything streamlined. You have your theme developed. The exact same things on medical records. Let's say one parent is the parent who is more active in taking the child to the doctor's office. You have to, if you have to, for completeness, present that whole record, you can then do a 1006 summary. And I use 1006 summaries a lot where you go, okay, these are the medical records of Dr. John Joe. Uh, these are the dates. These are the reasons the child went. This is the parent who took the child. And then your client can just boom, 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 testify on top of it. Now, when it gets to, again, that developing the themes and the issues, what I will sometimes ask my client, let's say I'm representing dad, I will say to them, what is she going to say about you? I'll just ask them directly. And, the, you know, a lot of times when I ask a client that, you know, they kind of get big eyed and, and go, well, uh, she's going to say, uh, but I'm like, I want to know what you think right now today she's going to say about you. So very, very important to, um, I develop chronologies and I develop themes. So I want to know a chronology of things that happened. And because I tell my client as well, I says, when we go, when I start this case and I do an opening statement, I'm going to talk about the themes. I'm going to talk about you're the parent who does this. You're the parent who does that. I'm going to kind of set the stage about how you're going to be attacked during this. When I'm presenting the evidence, I want to take it through chronology for the judge so the judge doesn't get lost because this is a this is something that... A lot of attorneys on the other side who have really weak cases, they like to confound the facts by like not giving timelines so that the judge can't make any association of anything. So the judge is just like hanging on bits and pieces of evidence and and not really getting the things like, you know, they may say uh, uh, one spouse may say, well, his family never comes to visit. Right. And then, you know, but the truth may be that maybe three members of his family had COVID. Right. Or something. So. So you want to make sure that you have chronologically developed your case. And then when I, before a client leaves the stand, we sum up the themes, you know, and so you go back to your themes, which basically your themes 
are the factors in custody. So if you have a factor in custody that says um, uh, better, uh, or, you know, providing care, day-to-day -day care for the child, then you have that theme. If it's extended family, you have that theme. If it's fostering the relationship with the other parent, you have that theme. So those are your themes from my perspective, but they're also the conclusions of law that you want the judge to reach. Yeah, re really good points there. So want to make sure we're clarified on, she talked about putting in 70 pages of text messages and going to specific messages. This isn't entering 70 pieces of evidence. That's probably not going to be very effective. Having those large volumes in one exhibit also can keep the other attorney away from where exactly the case is going or what arguments you're going to make. So big difference between putting in 70 pieces into evidence and it gets convoluted, it gets messy and entering one large document that you already have marked and you already know where you're going to go. That could be more effective than just doing a single screenshot because as opposing counsel, when you get a single screenshot, even if it's able to get into evidence, you know pretty much exactly where they're going to go with that piece of evidence and you can game plan for that. Well, and, good. And, and not only that, but I, I mean, in today's world, you, especially text messages, you have to be very cautious because text messages are often cryptic and often are a continuing conversation, you know, so you have to be very careful. There is a rule of evidence called the completeness doctrine. And if you pick one single text message out of a whole scroll of a text message conversation, if you do that to me as an attorney, I'm going to object on the completeness doctrine. And I'm going to say, if you can't sit here today and present, it's like taking an audio and doing, you know, 30 seconds seconds out of a four minute audio. If you're not willing to present and have that whole audio available for the other side, which of course we always have to exchange them in advance. So, you know, it's the completeness doctrine can really mess you up on text messages. I've seen that happen. And, and, but I will also say this about tons of evidence because I also tell my clients, look, you pay me a lot of money for every minute of my time. So it's very important to me that whatever evidence you have, that you put that evidence together. So if there are apps to download text messages, so you need to download your text messages with audios. If they come in with, you know, a flash drive full of audios, I say to them, I am not going to listen to 80 hours of audios. You can't afford for me to listen to 80 hours of audios. I don't know what's going to be effective. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. And then you identify where they are. Now I have found, and I don't know if you have used this mark, but there's a really good, I use rev.com. There's another one called otter.ai and they're really good uh, resources to upload audio files and get a transcript of it. And they come back a little bit choppy. There's a little few inaudibles because they're probably doing it in India or something. But you can take regular conversations and get them transcribed. And it's only like a dollar a minute. And your client can even do it. And then your client can listen to it. Your client can make the corrections in it if they need to. So, so you know, when, when I say prepare your evidence, I'm like, identify what your evidence is. You know, tell me why it's important once we develop what the themes are. And then the the 
the, the parent has to prepare that evidence and get it ready because it is so expensive. I mean, for an attorney to be in a courtroom, it's $2,400 a day easy. So, you know, you can't, I can't spend six days preparing for one day in court. Uh, you just can't do it. That's the best way for, if you have an attorney, the best way to save money is to bribe them with organized information. Mm -hmm. The minute you drown in an attorney in 14, 15 emails of random screenshots and pictures and audios, just know that's, if they go through all of that and they have to piece it all together, they have to piece the timeline together. They have to figure out where things are. That's time. And we don't, we don't, we aren't working for free. So the no. best way you can effectively use your attorney's time is if you provide organized information. Let your attorney drive the strategy. That's our job. We, we're gonna understand how these cases work, what the best angle may be, what, what the play that needs to be ran, and then you provide us with that detailed organized information, and then we can plug it right into the strategy, and it's gonna be most effective, it's, gonna, it's not gonna frustrate anybody, and it's gonna save you money. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so while we're talking about evidence, let's talk about bad evidence. Yes. Because I have had clients come in <laughs> with a conversation with their with their co-parent and, you know, well, she said this and she said that. And I go, OK, all right. So I like listen to it and like they both sound really, really bad. Right. It's like you go like there is no way I am playing that in the courtroom. I'm just going to tell you now. I mean, neither one of you better be putting that on because the judge will kick you both out of the courtroom. So, you know, there is, there is such a thing as bad evidence. And so be very careful. And once you have engaged in, uh, uh, you know, I mean, when you're sharing custody, I just have to say, you just have to be on good behavior. I mean, we just got to do it. You just, I don't care how much you hate the other person. I don't care how much grief they've had, they've given you, you know, you've got to be on good behavior and you cannot lose your cool and you don't need to be writing emails in all capital letters. And, you know, you don't need to be telling your co-parent that, you know, her mother was always a bitch to you. And, you know, you, you got to, you know, you, if we need a whole training course on that, perhaps we do, but you know, you, you have to co-parent, you have to co-parent and uh, you know, we, I, there's bad evidence. So don't get caught in bad evidence. Hey, I, t I tell clients that if you're going to send a written message, it better be uncomfortable to send because you're being so obnoxiously nice because I yeah. guarantee you one wrong word, all of a sudden the opposing counsel is going to be waving that and saying he's threatening her. He's frustrated. He's angry. So before you hit send, you better be uncomfortable with how nice you're being to your co-parent. Well, and I say this, I say, before you hit send, read that email out loud, like it's being read by a judge in a courtroom and see how it sounds. And then if it sounds okay, then you can hit send. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I think that's a, we'll kind of transition and we'll, we'll be more dad specific here. Um, Cause one of the biggest mistakes I see um, just with the way California, the California family code is written is dads usually get themselves in trouble with what we'll call a mean text. Um, so there, there's a lot of domestic violence restraining orders that essentially are framed around a handful of mean texts. So for you and your practice, California has a 
not the greatest law when it comes to that stuff. And they incentivize alleging domestic violence with mm-hmm. the way the family code is written in, in California. Uh, it's family code section 3044. If a party on preponderance of the evidence is found to have perpetuated domestic violence for five years, it's presumed that they should not have joint or sole legal or physical custody. So I see almost every single case there's allegations of domestic violence that hinge on mean texts is what I call them. What do you see in your practice as some of the biggest mistakes that men make? Okay, so uh, before I get into that, though, I want to say something about Tennessee law and this new law. So there's another statute in Tennessee called 366406, which basically says just what you said. If there is a finding of abuse or threat to abuse against a parent or another sibling or the child, then it says that the court shall restrict parenting time. Okay, so, so, and, and I talked early on about we've got this new law, but there's always a way if you look at another law somewhere where it's going to get junked up. And I say this is one of the big problems with family law, which is all statutory. It's all by statute. There's no common law in family law. So you have statutes that are built layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer. And you have General Assembly people who are making these laws who don't understand the comprehensive nature of the statutory scheme. However, the whole legislative interpretation law says that you're to cons- that a judge has to consider the statutory scheme. So you have this joint custody law here that says that it's it's presumption by preponderance of evidence of joint custody unless by clear and convincing evidence there's a reason that it should not be right however you have 366406 which says that if by a preponderance of evidence there's any evidence of physical emotional sexual you know abuse parent child sibling then parenting times to be restricted so i i don't i mean i'm i'm I think that's going to be a problem. I think that's going to kind of muck things up for the joint custody law. So I just, you know, people um, uh, need to stay aware of that. Now, I forget the question you asked me. I think it was about men. Biggest yeah, well, what, what, yeah, so, so um, no, I, I agree with you. And, and people have to realize, even when some of these states maybe have some misguided domestic violence laws that get passed, it's much easier for an elected official to vote for, because domestic violence is a serious issue. That shouldn't be downplayed, period. Mm -hmm. But it's much easier for an elected official to vote for stronger domestic violence laws than it is for them to loosen the restrictions or make it more difficult. So that's just going to happen because of the serious nature of domestic violence, and it does still happen. Well, and you know that that's also based on federal funding too, right? The Violence Against Women Act, VAWA money flows to the states to have stronger domestic violence laws. So there's California's a- 3044 came in was was after the Violence Against Women Act immediately yeah, after. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's uh, financially, uh, in, there's incentives there for that. So let's talk about uh, dads. And I will say I have had some great dads as clients. I mean, I've had some awesome dads that we've come in and we've overturned prior custody decisions. Um, uh, I mean, I've just, I've had some great ones. And I will say that all of my great dads 
have listened to every word I said. I mean, they have been, they have, um, I mean, they've been great at, and it's really kind of funny because I'm a woman and they're a man and, you know, you would think there might be some uh, level of um, massage, you know, being misogynistic or something, but all of the great dads that I've had that we've won really good things have really, really listened to me. And I really try to encourage that. And I will also say there's another kind of class of dads that come in to see me and they know I have a good reputation. However, they're a little haughty and they're a little, oh, I've been abused and, you know, I've been beat up in the system. And then, and I, uh, I give them the, you know, wag my finger at them a little bit, but you know, they turn the ones who are there and they turn around and listen to me. They also end up with very good results. So, uh, so there's a, there's that bit of humility and, and being humble of kind of, and, it, but they stayed strong. I mean, they're, they're obviously very strong people that I've worked with and they're not weak and we've been able to get through it. I mean, there are uh, sometimes there are dads that, um, I, you just can't get, um, you just can't get them to understand that, you know, maybe they are not, there are some dads that don't, aren't really active parents. I mean, there are some dads that just, you know, they want to be a dad and they want to be a good time dad and have fun, but they really don't want that responsibility of co-parenting like the other parent does. And so I have to draw, have really, really serious discussions with them and kind of find out where they are on that. Now, I don't want to leave this. I know we're going to get to the end of the hour and this is a whole nother topic. We can discuss another time, but the Title IV-D money and the way we handle child support is, is outrageous. It's just outrageous. So it's all based upon false false facts. They're not even facts. It's the whole schedule, the calendar, all of that is crazy. So that's a whole nother discussion that has to do with shared parenting, but uh, we have a long ways to go yet. And, you know, we have an uphill battle, but we need both parents on both sides, very, very well educated, very prepared, ready to work hard to get a good decision that they can live with going forward. Yeah, definitely. And, and we'll, we'll kind of transition to, to the, um, you, you've done a lot of work. Um, you, you're actually, I would say pretty unique in terms of the, on the family law spectrum of you have some pretty significant experience in federal court, um, being in, being in the court of appeals, which the federal court of appeals for a family law attorney, not all that common. So in terms of government infringement on, I know a lot of the work is with government infringement on children's rights. How have you seen that come along and what have you had uh, in terms of success in federal court impacting family law? Okay. Uh, so my, the biggest thing that I am working on federal court issues are I do a lot of child welfare cases where the government has stepped in, removed children, uh, infringing on parental rights, infringing on uh, children's rights, ex parte orders, lying in affidavits. And so those are all end up in civil rights actions. 
you can't really have a case between a mom and a dad in a divorce or a paternity action and end up in a civil rights case. Judges have immunity. You can't go anywhere with that. Guardian ad litems have immunity. I mean, you really are not going to get anywhere. I, you know, I think at some point, someday, we might have some class action on the whole child support <laughs> enforcement. Uh, I think there's probably some constitutional issues there. But I'm primarily looking at the wrongful removal of children, ex parte orders, uh, and uh, wrongful uh, searches, uh, forcing parents to do drug screens when there's no evidence of drug abuse. So it's very, very difficult, lots of immunities. You have to be a real warrior who's willing to uh, take a lot of hits and invest a lot of time without rewards because you have to, you have to create the law as you go. Okay, awesome. So let me, I'm going to dig through here right now. Um, we'll we'll kind of wrap up with some questions. I'll, I'll ask you um, one, I guess one question here while I dig through and find these questions for us to um, answer. But if you, you talked about the best dads are the ones that listen to you, they follow your directions. I completely agree. I think you saw me cheering you on. The ones that listen usually get the best results because things don't happen overnight in family law court. But Going back to my football analogies, if you get enough first downs, you're going to score. You're going to score, and you're going to win some games. So, what would you tell dads would be kind of the top three things they need to do today, no matter where they're at in their custody journey, um, to help themselves and help their child from a child welfare standpoint. Yeah, so uh, I know there's a, and I've watched a few of these comments pop up where uh, there's a lot of dads who have really been restricted. And um, that's very, very challenging uh, and it's very heartbreaking. So when they're developing those relationships with their children, they need to give their child some breathing room. And we, you, there is a father's rights advocate. I'm not going to call him out by, by name because I'm, I wouldn't do that without letting him know I was going to do it. But I know we have kind of seen him through his advocacy and we've seen him kind of struggle with gaining better rights to his child. And a couple years ago, he finally got like a week's visit with his child and they planned a big vacation and he was posting about it and it was miserable. His child, you know, wouldn't come out of the corner, said he was sick, wouldn't come out of the room. I mean, they had, they were at a resort and it was miserable. And, you know, and I just reached out to him and I said, just, this is like the first time they've been on like a week's vacation. And I'm like, just give it time. Don't blame him. Don't hold it against him. Let him just kind of, that's a comfort place for him. And they're like, they don't know what to do. This is very, very difficult for children. It is very, very difficult for us to take ourselves back to being five, six, seven, eight years old. I mean, we, by the time we're 30, 40, 50 years old, our world is very, very large. We've met thousands of people in our lifetime. Your children don't, they don't know a hundred people, right? I mean, they have a very, very small world and all, and of the people that they know, most of the people they know in a very defined setting, 
right? Like your doctor has a certain role. Your teacher has a certain role. Kids in your class have a certain role. So everything that they ex are experiencing, if they have a nice, stable, comfortable life, is very, very controlled. And so when we're pushing them into these new situations, and let's say a dad hasn't had time and now he gets a week's time, the child is going to be uncomfortable. And just don't push it work with your child through that. Just engage with them about how they feel. It's okay. Don't react, right? So if a child says something like, well, mom says you only want to, you only want to take me on vacation so you don't have to give her money. Okay. That would, might be something we would hear. So don't react, right? So, you know, you can just say, well, you know, I, I, that's interesting that she told you that. And, and you can say, I disagree with that. And you can disagree. But, you know, it's really not the case. And let's just enjoy our time. So don't argue with your child about what your co-parent is saying. Right. You agree with me on that one, Mark? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yeah. So very, very critical. So that same uh, advocate, have, as we've seen him develop now, a couple years later, is having his child going on a vacation, having a wonderful time. But they didn't push their child and try to put their child in the middle of negotiating the re relationship between the two parents. Number one, big problem. Don't do it. Stay away from it. Yeah, one one hundred percent. Never, never. It, no matter the age of the child, you got to keep them out of the middle of it, and you have to keep them shielded from that. All right. So let's go to some viewer questions. So we'll start with a little evidence here. So Jonathan, I've had video and audio, and still denied by the judge. I didn't have a lawyer for help though. So have you ever had instances where judges just didn't want to see audio, video, or, or some evidence that may be for purposes of impeachment? Okay, yeah, you know, that's good. So let's talk about that for a minute. So yes, I have had judges say, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to do that. I've had them try to talk to a child. I'm not going to talk to the child, right? There's this great thing in evidence called offer of proof. Okay, so an offer of proof is if the, you ask to put something in and the judge says, no, they're not going to hear it. You say, you can do this even if you're pro se, you say, I'm going to make an offer of proof. Okay. An offer of proof can be anything from, I mean, it's a very, very broad and it doesn't even have to be qualified as evidence. You can do a statement and put it in the record as to an offer of proof. So let's say you wanted to call your cousin, Betty, to testify about your care of the child. And the judge goes, no, I've heard enough. You can write a statement. You can write it yourself and say, Betty would testify to this, right? And you can put, file it with the record and put it in the record. And you can even do it if, after the case, as long as you tell the judge you're going to do it. You can't just go after the case is closed. You can't just go collect a bunch of stuff and say, I'm filing as an offer of proof. But if you're in the courtroom, the judge says, no, I'm not going to listen to it. You say, okay, your honor, I'm going to tender it to the record as an offer of proof. Very, very important. It preserves your record. Record. It puts the judge on notice and it helps you keep moving your case into a better direction. Yeah, definitely. Get, getting those first downs. That's what I always say. Keep moving in the positive direction. All right. So we got a second one here from Daniel. Um, can Connie discuss what she's seen in regards to any cases transferred from, we'll just say anywhere to Tennessee? Are they maintained as is? 
so I've had a few cases where uh, parents have moved around the country. And so they may have, I had one poor dad that moved like three times to follow the co-parent, right? They were in Washington, then they were in California, and then Arizona, then Tennessee. And before we were over, she moved to Illinois. So, you know, he did everything he could and moved two or three times. And ultimately, then he said, like, I can't do it anymore. I've got to have a job. I've got to be employed. I got to be stable. So, so, um, you know, it, it causes a, uh, you have to have a hearing on it and you have to, again, develop and create that relationship. Uh, but, um, you know, if there's a, if there is a order already in one state, Tennessee is going to enroll that order and they're going to enforce that order unless there's some change of circumstance. Now, let me also just go ahead and talk then about relocation, because this is kind of there's been a huge change in relocation in Tennessee. So the relocation is where you have two parents in Tennessee and then one parent says, I want to move. All right. So the rule used to be that if you were if you had primary care of the child and you wanted to move, you could pretty much do it in Tennessee unless the other parent could really show that it was going to be harmful to uh, the child. Now, there might be some modifications of the parenting time, but you weren't going to be able to stop them. Just a couple years ago, they changed that law that basically creates a whole new custody case if one parent's going to move and kind of put you back on an even playing field if one parent's going to move out of the jurisdiction. Yeah, I think a lot of states have made it made it more challenging. I think the biggest thing I see with relocation or being in different states, um, I'm not too far from a fairly large Navy base. Mm -hmm. And so we see those moves a lot in those situations. Uh, is that men don't react right away to, or men are reactive. So they wait and it's like, oh yeah, my ex left 60 days ago. My ex left six months ago. Or, oh, they told me six months ago they got orders to go to Florida. Mm -hmm. Like it would be much easier on the attorney and you're going to have a much better shot if when you first know it's going to happen, you immediately get in touch with that attorney and you start figuring out how you're going to go about it. Men end up so reactive in these situations. I, 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 I hear on a weekly basis, oh, it's six months ago she moved. And in California, most orders require you to go to court or have, uh, or have approval of the other parent to move out of the state or even to be out of the state for more than a week. So right. men need to stop being so reactive in these situations. Stop sticking your head in the sand and deal with the situation in front of you because not dealing with it is only going to make things worse. Well, and let me add to that. So let's say you have a, you have a uh, parents who are not married and have never been married. And so then you have paternity actions, which also involve visitation and custody. I had a case where I had a dad in Tennessee. The baby was born in Tennessee. They are both, uh, both parents were born in, no, the mom was born in Canada. The dad was born in the U.S. So the mom gets up and she leaves for Canada. And she, then she calls him after she's in Canada and tells him that she is there. But she says she's going to come back. Okay, so we didn't know it at the time, but she forged his name on a handwritten document at the border to be able to take the child across the border. We did not find that out. But because she led him on for nearly a year and he did not do anything, we were never able to get good. We did 
take jurisdiction in Tennessee, but we were never able to enforce jurisdiction in Tennessee. So I had ended up with a Tennessee order that she never responded to. We had a Canadian order that he had to, to be able to see his child, he had to comply with. So even where there's paternity and the parents are not married, and one parent takes off, leaves the state, people have got to do something very quickly. And I mean, there's jurisdictional issues and you have to realize a lot of times judges for whatever reason are gonna favor the child staying in their jurisdiction. So if you don't do anything about it and six months goes by, all of a sudden the jurisdiction is not your local courthouse, it may be all the way across the country. Right, right. And under the UCCJEA, they also look at that six-month uh, standard and see where the child has been for the past six months. All right, we'll wrap it up. I got one more question here. So we got AJ. So how do I fight for more time or how do I fight for more time with your own children when after support and taxes, you may only have one third of a paycheck at best? Everyone says you have to fight in court. How do you do that? Okay, so kind of depends on your state and where you are, but in Tennessee, there's a mediation provision and it says that if you, you know, depending on the, the parenting time, but you can ask for mediation and you can go to mediation without an attorney. You can, now the other thing, and I'm not very happy with it, is the whole provision for attorney's fees. If you lose custody, the other parent can be awarded attorney's fees. I'm not very happy with this because, it also becomes another dagger and another weapon in the in the um, arsenal of a parent who wants to be vindictive. So, you know, you can you need to just start putting together your case, becoming act very active in your children's life as much as you can with the time that you do have. And it's worth now in Tennessee, a change, a modification of visitation is different than modification of custody. So as long as you're just asking for more visitation, the standard in Tennessee is not is not very high. It's like, although it's still a preponderance of evidence, it's not like a substantial and material change of circumstance. It's just showing that that change in visitation would be in the child's best interest. So if it's just adding more time and you can go in and you can show that your relationship has grown with your children, I would say go for it, you know, and watch as many videos. You've got good attorneys who are making videos now in talking to you about how to be prepared how to present yourself in the courtroom. I know, and on my pages, I've got a couple guys who've gone in and fought, fought the court system on their own and they're very proud of it. So, you know, prepare yourself, get ready to go and just keep, you know, just keep doing it. Even if you have to inch your way through it. Do something. That's yeah. the biggest thing. Do something. If you don't try to do something, I found in California over the last couple of years, if you just show you're trying to be more involved, that's usually enough to chip away. You may you may start out at like you have supervised visitation every other weekend, whatever it may be. But if you continually show the judge that you want more, you want to take on more parenting responsibilities, that usually will will get you somewhere. If you show that you want to be involved, if you do nothing and the judge sees you once every 18 months, well, what are you doing those 18 months in between if you so desperately want to be more involved? Yeah. And I say be a healthy individual. You know, I mean, if you need to sometimes check your own bad habits, because if you're going to have to represent yourself, I'm going to tell you, they're going to find your bad habits. Right. So, you know, if you, you know, I don't care if it's smoking pot, jumping jobs, you know, not being able to keep a vehicle or whatever, or, you know, so 
you know, make your life as best as you can and then make your life with your children as best as you can. I mean, parenting is, is, is not for is not slack business okay i've raised three children i have grandchildren i help raise my grandchildren raising children is critical and it's hard and it is a big big job and they're little human beings that you have to feed the right information to make them good adults and one of the best things you can do is be the best adult that you can be so you know work on yourself make sure that you're in a good spot that you're feeling good about yourself work on your own head so that you have a good attitude and then just keep building that relationship with the children yeah, definitely. So um, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up here with that. But before we get out of here, um, Connie, I want to talk about the project that you have going on, the Family Ford Project, and uh, what you're doing with that, and how our viewers can connect with you on that. Okay, great. Thank you. So most of you have seen my name up on the screen. It's Connie Reguli, R-E-G-U-L-I. And I do have a YouTube channel. And that's one of the easiest places to just kind of focus and, and locate me because I'm what I do is I have a group on Facebook called the Family Forward Project. And we have about 15,000 members. And I really created that group to talk about the child welfare issues, to put news stories in, to put case law in. I belong to the American Bar Association Parent Representation Group. So we are seeing a lot of things happening. There's new federal laws going on in that. So I'm really trying to kind of correct the ship, uh, the direction of the ship in child welfare. So lots of families are being abused by that system and children being run through strangers' homes, basically. So the Family Forward Project is a group and a page on Facebook. We have a nonprofit called the Family Forward Foundation. The Family Forward Foundation is a Facebook page as well as it has its own website where people can make donations. It is a 501c3. The money that we, any money that we get there, we're really just using it for educational purposes now. I have traveled to about 10 to 12 different states where we meet with small groups of people. People. I talk with state legislators. I travel to Washington, D.C. So then I my website is Law Care Family Law Center, 10familylaw.com. And that is where people can also find me. But if you just kind of want to hear my story more, hear me talking about what we're doing, I do lives on Facebook. I then upload them to YouTube. So you can go to YouTube and there's over 100 videos up there. Awesome. And in terms of representation, you represent clients. You're in Brentwood, which is a suburb of Nashville, and you represent clients throughout Middle Tennessee. So well, right. And I mean, I've gone as as far as both ends of Tennessee, and Tennessee's a very long state. So I mean, I've gone as far as Tri-Cities and as Memphis. It does cost a lot to take me there because I do charge for travel if I have to go that far. But definitely I work, you know, throughout the uh, about a third of the counties in Middle Tennessee. Awesome. Awesome. So if you're in Middle Tennessee and or Tennessee in general, you're looking for representation, um, 10 T-E-N-N familylaw.com. Go like her Facebook page, the Family Ford Project. Go find her on YouTube. Um, as for me, realfathersrights.com um, on Facebook, The Family Law Attorney. Um, and thank you for joining us tonight uh, to kick the show off, Connie. Um, it was uh, very informative. And uh, for all of our viewers, uh, we will be back next Thursday with Joseph Emmerich, who is an author and Illinois uh, family law attorney. So we will see all of you guys next week.